Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. The title of the message, An Introduction to the Last Plagues. You say, I've seen enough sickness and illness, I don't want to see any more. Well, the rapture comes first, but we're going to study what's happening in Revelation chapter 15. It's been a while since we've been in the book. Let's get our bearings of the entire book. We did this at the end of chapter 8, and I think it would be good, again, to get an overview uh, to be sure we know the context of where we are, as well as remembering that repetition aids learning. Have you heard that before? It does, then. Uh, the overview of the book of Revelation, I think what I'll do is probably post this online, so don't worry about taking notes, but uh, there's one verse that gives the outline of the book, and that's Revelation 119. We've mentioned that before where John is told to write the things that he's seen, the things that are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Chapter 1 were the past events. John was on the island of Patmos. He was seeing Christ in his glory. That was the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why the title of the book. Chapters 2 and 3, the present events, the seven churches of Asia Minor. Chapters 4 through 22, cover the future events. So we have that uh, a nutshell of a verse, uh, Revelation 119, that gives the outline for the whole book. Another outline that's given are the, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of wrath. And so after each uh, seal of the scroll, there are things that uh, have been unfolded. The seventh seal opens the, uh, begins the seventh trump, or the first trumpet. The seventh trumpet announces the seven bowls of wrath. And so, uh, as in one of those uh, Russian Petrushka dolls, they, they come apart, and in each one uh, we have seven more. So, the, ch the, the chapter content of the entire book. First of all, the revelation of God to John on, on the Isle of Patmos, that was chapter 1. The letters to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, the, vision, the visions of the throne of God surrounded by the 24 elders and the four beasts. That was chapter 4. Chapter 5, the Lamb is deemed worthy to open the seven-sealed scroll, uh, seven scroll. of Chapter 6, the first six seals are open. Where there were four horsemen that we met in that chapter. Chapter 7, the angels hold back the wind until 144,000 uh, Israelites are sealed for the tribulation. The seventh seal is open in chapter 8, and the first four trumpets sound. In those trumpets' judgments, a third of the vegetation burns, a third of the sea is turned to blood, a third of the waters are poisoned by a falling star by the name of Wormwood. Chapter 9, trumpets 5 and 6 sound. They are called the two woes in that chapter. Two hundred million, there's a 200 million man army that kill one third of mankind. Chapter 10, the angel, the book, and the measuring rod all uh, used to measure the temple of God. Uh, chapter 11, two tribulation witnesses uh, come on the scene. They witness for three and a half years, and then the seventh trumpet sounds, and that's called the third woe. And with that seventh trumpet, um, that marks the, the second half of the tribulation, the seven years tribulation. But in the meantime, there is a parenthetical chapters, chapter 12 and 13, tell us about seven personages, that is, those characters that will be on the scene in the, in the last days. In chapter 10, the angel, the book, the measuring rod. Um, chapter 11, let's see, I've already been there. 12 and 13 were the seven personages. Chapter 14, the conquering lamb. 
There are three messages in that chapter, the gospel, the destruction of Babylon, and the harvest of grain and grapes. That brings us to chapter 15. I'll mention that in a minute. But in chapter 16, we'll see seven bowls of wrath. This is the introduction to that. It's telling us what is going to happen in the very next chapter. These these bowls, these vials of God's wrath will be poured out on the earth. 17 and 18 cover the destruction of Babylon, that one world government of the end times. Chapter 19, the final battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ. Now remember there's a difference between the rapture and the return. The rapture is the next thing on God's agenda. Nothing has to take place before uh, he calls us home and we're caught up to be with him. But the return is when he comes back in glory, when every eye shall see him. And so that's going to be uh, in chapter 19, the return. Chapter 20 is the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. Chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter. The chronology of events in the seven years of tribulation, as I mentioned, are on hold. There is this parenthetical section. Since we heard the seventh trumpet sound marking the second half of the tribulation back in chapter 11. So chapter 15, it's the last chapter in that pause of events that takes place in the tribulation, or before the tribulation. We, we called chapters 14 and 15 the calm before the storm, as God is preparing to send seven angels with these seven plagues to be poured out in judgment on the earth. So an introduction to the seven last plagues. Just eight verses tonight. I'll have you out before the sun comes up. Okay? I used to be able to say, I'll try to have you out before the sun sets, but with the time change, well, I have to change that. Okay. Two points to, to the message. We'll divide the chapter in half. First four verses. John saw a sign in heaven. John saw a sign in heaven. The second four verses, chapter, uh, verses five through eight, uh, he saw the temple of God in heaven. So he sees a sign, he sees a temple. In verse 1, what did John see? He saw seven angels. Verse 1, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So John sees what is called another sign in heaven. And when you see that, you say, well, what were the other, the first signs? This word sign is simeon, we've seen it before. It's something supernatural, something miraculous, something you don't see every day. The first sign is back in chapter 12 in verse 1, and that was the woman. The woman represented Israel. The second sign was the red dragon in chapter 12 and verse 3. So the first two signs back in chapter 12, verses 1 and verse 3, the Israel and the red dragon. Uh, the, the red dragon, which is Satan's control of the final world empire, of all the world empires up to that final Babylon. And so we have, so far, there's two signs, Israel and Babylon. The third sign is judgment. And that's what these bowls of wrath will be poured out. This is what John describes now, seven angels with seven bowls of judgment. This third sign is described as great and marvelous. Those two words are used separately throughout the New Testament, but they're only found together in this chapter, and it's found twice, once here in verse 1, and then again in verse 3. In verse 3, we read, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. 
So what's great and marvelous? First, the judgments poured out on the earth. Second, his works are great and marvelous. The word great there means, it can mean large, or it can mean loud, or mighty in strength. Marvelous. That's something that caused John to marvel at, something that he wondered at as he saw it. And we use the word wonderful in, in a different way today. Uh, little, it's full of wonder. Now, if I were to come over to your house and I said, that meal was wonderful, you'd say, That's, I understand the meaning of that word wonderful. But if I were to come over and, and use it as the biblical context here, the idea is something full of wonder. Okay, take the full instead of wonderful at the end, full of wonder. It's beyond what we've seen or understood in the context of a normal life. And so if I were to say that uh, biblically that meal was wonderful, that made me wonder what I was eating. You know, it could be something like that. Um, words change. Someone came up to me one time and said that message was like the grace and mercy of God. Grace because it passed my understanding. And mercy because I thought it would endure forever. <laughs> So when we see this word wonderful here, it's something that is not to be desired. Okay? These plagues will be fearful for those that are on the earth. At the end, times of, uh, at the end of verse 1, we have the details of the sign shown to John. Just, the, the message is described, seven angels. Now because there's no definite article, the word the, in front of seven angels, the seven angels, these are not any angels that we have met yet in the book of Revelation. Each one of them has one of the seven last plagues. Now in scripture, seven is the, normal, the number of completion. The word last here is in the emphatic position in the Greek text. It's the last word of the verse. And so literally, seven angels having the seven plagues, the last ones. Often in a courtroom, uh, in, in, in our sense of man's justice in this earth, we leave and, and we wonder if a mistake was made. There was a truth, perhaps, that was suppressed. There were decisions that were made, uh, testimonies that weren't quite right. And it leaves us with the feeling that something more needed to be said, more evidence needed to come to light when God's final judgment comes, it will be complete. There will be a sense of finality. Then the Lord will reveal himself in glory, the second coming. Again, not the rapture, but the return. God's wrath has filled each of these seven bowls. The end of verse 1, the phrase, in them is filled up the wrath of God. The word filled has the idea of bringing something to a conclusion or to its ultimate goal. That is, the wrath of God has been stored up and it's now ready to be poured out. All of God's wrath is in these bowls. There are two words for wrath in the New Testament. One is used five times and one is used 12 times or 18 times. The word for wrath here is the word thumas. That's the one that's word 18, used 18 times. It just means anger. Uh, God's anger culminates in another kind of a wrath, and the Greek word there is orge. It, it has to do with vengeance or indignation or punishment. 
And that's the one that's found five times in the New Testament. By the time the seventh bowl is poured out, his anger has reached the point of judgment. In Revelation 16 and verse 19, we see both of those words, orge and thumas. This is in the very next chapter, and that's when it's being poured out. Uh, Revelation 16, 19, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness, the thumas, of his wrath. So the, the anger of his judgment. Arndt Gingrich, the Greek scholars that have, have helped us in, in a lot of areas of language in the New Testament, say, the combinations of thumas and orge connotes the strongest kind of outpouring of divine judgment. Man knows that God doesn't tolerate sin. He cannot because he's holy. And they know that someday that sin must be punished. But people don't like to think of God as a God of wrath. They like to think that he's loving, that he's patient, that he's kind, and he is. But all of God's attributes, his characteristics, are with him at all times and in their fullness. He doesn't set aside one so he can display another. And so... He is loving, and he is just. And in love, Jesus took our punishment. That wrath of God was poured out on him for our sin. But if you refuse that substitutionary sacrifice, then you will bear your own sin, and you will come before God and know his wrath. In Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, Paul describes how one day if you refuse to accept the payment Christ made for you, you'll face his wrath. Romans 2, 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath, against, and that word means until, all the way up until you're, you're at that place of his wrath, until the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. And the word wrath in, in this verse, in verse 5 of Romans 2, is that uh, orge, that vengeance, that judgment that will fall. John saw those who refused to take the mark of the beast in verses 2 and 3. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. The sea of glass is mentioned here. It was also mentioned in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6 at the very beginning of that verse. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Now, there's something different about this sea of glass as it appears in this chapter. Here, 
fire is involved. It's a sea of glass, as it were, mixed with fire. So the fire of God's wrath originates from the throne of God in heaven. It is God's wrath. It is just. It is right. It is fair. John describes those who are victorious over four attacks of the beast. I saw them that had gotten the victory. Their victory is over all the attempts that Satan has, has made to try to uh, I, I, get them to identify with him over the beast, the Antichrist, over his image. Chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, the false prophet made the people of the earth an image to the one who was wounded by the sword and lived. The false prophet was empowered by Satan to give life to the image, to speak and to kill and any who would not worship that image. And so he gives power, uh, or he's, John sees those who have gotten the victory over the beast, the image, his mark, that is the identifying mark on the forehead or the right hand, and over the number of his name, that is the number of man, the number 666. They now stand on the sea of glass. They're standing before the throne of God. These are the martyred saints of the tribulation, both Jews and Gentiles, those who have trusted Christ as Savior and suffered the consequences of not taking the mark of the beast, that is their death. These are the ones that are standing before the throne of God. Custer writes, the victorious remnant that endures the fires of persecution now stands on the fiery sea that shines with the glory of God. Notice they have the harps of God. The only instruments that are mentioned in the book of Revelation are harps and trumpets. These are God's harps. They're given to the victors of the tribulation, and they're playing them. As God's harps, I was thinking about that, they're probably never out of tune. <laughs> they're perfectly tuned. They're always tuned to praise him. And the music they play is dedicated only to him. John tells us what they will sing. Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Notice here again the definite article, the. The definite article is, is before each of these songs. The song of Moses, the song of the Lamb. That tells us that there are two songs that they will sing. Song of Moses is recorded back in the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. There will be a large number of Israelites among the martyrs of the tribulation. The song in Exodus 15 was a song the children of Israel sang when they were delivered from Egypt. There will be another song of deliverance for Israel. Won't that be a wonderful song? A deliverance of redemption. A song that anticipates the millennial kingdom for which all of Israel has been waiting for, that fulfills the promise of God made to Abraham. Beasley and Murray in the New Bible Commentary write this, Every line of the song is reminiscent of the prophets and psalmists. Great and marvelous are your deeds. Psalm 98, 1. Psalm 111, 2. Psalm 139, 14. Just and true are your ways. Deuteronomy 32.3, Psalm 145.17. Who will not fear you, Jeremiah 10.7. O 
All nations will come, Psalm 86.9. Your righteous acts have been revealed, Psalm 98.2 and Isaiah 26.9. This is a, an Old Testament biblical song that these Israelites will be singing. We also see the second song, the Song of the Lamb. That's also a song of redemption. It's a song that tells of the worthiness of the Lamb who is slain to atone for all of our sins. And there will be a large number of Gentiles among the martyrs of the tribulation. I enjoyed what John Phillips wrote about these songs. He says, the song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was sung of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought, out, brought his people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brought his people in. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last. The song of Moses commemorated the execution of the foe the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord, the Song of the Lamb deals with the same three themes. I love to hear good singing. I love the music in this church. I used to think it's because of the shape of the auditorium. This, they just bounces off the, the walls and the ceiling. And then I realized, no, it's the people singing. It's the heart that you have as you sing before the Lord. And I can't imagine what it'll be like to hear these two songs that are sung by those who have given their lives for Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. The question is addressed to God. Oh Lord, there's a rhetorical question here uh, from the ones who've been singing. Verse 4, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. So again, this question is addressed to God. O oh Lord, the, the rhetoric implies that everyone should fear his name. Who shall not fear thee? That's a, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. Everyone should fear the Lord. And the song closes with a quote from Psalm 86, verse 9. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. John saw a sign in heaven, these seven angels. John also saw the temple. What drew John's attention away from the seven angels and the songs of the tribulation saints? The Holy of Holies in heaven. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Now the words for temple and tabernacle are specifically different here. The temple is naas. The tabernacle is skene. And so the naas refers to the Holy of Holies within the, the, the tabernacle. The, the, the temple itself, or the tabernacle itself, is that, uh, uh, that, that Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, because of the tables of stone that it contained, the Ark of that, that covenant that God made, the Mosaic Covenant with man, to the children of Israel. The Shekinah glory that represented the presence of God was above the mercy seat 
beneath the outstretched arms of the cherubim. We come to verse 6. The temple of God is opened, and from within the Holy of Holies come the seven angels. And the seven angels came out of the temple, that is that Holy of Holies, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having about their breasts girded with golden girdles. They came from the presence of God. They are on a mission that God has designed, this mission of pouring out the wrath. They come out with seven plagues. I find it interesting here that the the vials are not given to them until they come out of the Holy of Holies, and they already have the plagues with them as they come out. And that got me intrigued. Walverd gave the best answer, I think, to that. He says the reference to the plagues in verse 6 may be prophetic or the bestowal of the vials may be the authorization to use them. So that satisfies my curiosity, but they're coming out with the plagues and then they're given the vials. They're clothed in pure and white linen. They are holy angels. We've talked about the encounters that Jesus had in Capernaum in the mornings. And there, we call, the, the demonic spirits were called unclean spirits. And these spirits are pure. They're dressed in white. They are God's angels, not Satan's. Some say that the golden girdles are more like a sash of gold draped from the shoulder to the waist. Others describe them as belts that are wrapped around the waist. These seven angels were given the bowls of wrath by one of the four beasts in verse 7. We read about those four beasts back in chapter 4. And the word was zoan, which is something that's living, a living creature. Dr. Custer called those cherubim. Verse 7 And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. MacArthur says these bowls or vials were not deep. I've seen pictures of the conceptual drawings of these angels with their their pitchers to pour out God's wrath on the earth. The word here, according to MacArthur, says uh, he's talking about uh, shallow saucers. He writes, the imagery is not that, that of a stream being poured gradually out of a pitcher, but the whole contents of the shallow saucers being hurled down in an instant flood of judgment. In verse 8, we see the Holy of Holies was filled with smoke. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. The smoke has two sources, the glory of God, the power of God. And the smoke filled the entire temple. It permeated the Holy of Holies, made it impossible for anything else, the angels to to go, and anyone to go back in there until the angels were finished with their, with their job. Walvert says the smoke of the temple, uh, the smoke filled the temple, making it impossible for anyone to enter in t- until the seven plagues were poured out on the earth. What a scene. All the wrath of God has been stored up throughout all the ages will be suddenly poured out upon the earth 
as it's given to these seven angels. Walvert says, it is an ominous sign of impending doom for those who persist in their blasphemous disregard of the sovereignty and holiness of God. As we look around at our culture, we see the animosity toward Christ, and we see it increasing, and our hearts should go out because one day they will face the wrath of God unless they turn to Christ. I can think of one other time when God's wrath was poured out. It was when Jesus took our sins and our punishment on himself. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 4-6, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus made salvation available, but those who turn away from his provision will face God's wrath on their sins. Mercy that is rejected will bring judgment that is deserved. John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth with their own unrighteousness. Romans 2.5, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Those on the earth during the tribulation who refuse that gospel, that eternal gospel preached by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists will see God's power demonstrated. But they'll follow the lies of the Antichrist and reject the Savior, and God's wrath will be poured out. If you've never trusted Christ, it's not too late. Trust him as your Savior today. Our Father, we would ask that if there are any who are still listening to this, this message tonight, the words of the scriptures, the invitation of the hymn, any who have never responded to your love, I pray that they will reject him no longer. They'll throw open the doors, throw their heart to Christ, invite him in to save them from their sins so that they can have that eternal life that you've promised to all who believe in you. I pray that you'll help us to go from this place with that message on our lips and that burden on our hearts for others that we would see one more person come to know you as Savior. We ask that you'll help us to be faithful in that witness and bold in our faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.